Hello and welcome to Criticism is Dead, a weekly culture podcast about what we're watching and what it all means, if it means anything at all. I'm Pelin Keskin, a producer and writer. I'm Jenny Jijong, a culture writer and critic. This week we're discussing Emily the Criminal and Decision to Leave, two films that are about crimes of passion, so to speak. Yeah. Passion of love, passion, passion of mystery, of, yeah. passion of money. Yeah, all of those things. How's your week been? What's been on your mind, Jen? So I think maybe I've been telling this around to too many people, but I, I have a hunch, an eerie hunch that I'm becoming like prophetic in my dreams specifically. <gasps> um, I know it's always boring when people talk about dreams, but I'm going to say like, tell I, me more. I, I, I had a dream that this cabinet that I wanted to buy was sold out and I was devastated. And then a few days later, guess what? I checked on the product page. It was sold out. It was indeed sold wow. out. Wow. So, you could know, you, I'm kind of worried. Could you do now. my year ahead reading for oh, 2023? Yeah. I'll see what I dream up uh, in my next snooze. So I'll keep you posted. Um, <laughs> now, Palin, what about you? What's going on in your world? I don't know, dude. I've been like reading a lot and that's been great. I've been, I've, I've read a couple of books that have been pretty awesome. Oh, um, recommend. Nice. Yeah, give us some recommendations for the pod. Um, I recently finished All This Could Be Different, which is a good book mm-hmm. about queerness in like milwaukee and being an, an only immigrant daughter like mm. very ge- i'm trying to speak very generally because i don't want to give anything away yeah but it's a pretty good book uh but it's been great i think it's just like any <laughs> any opportunity i can get to like tear my eyes away from a screen um i'll take it so yeah yes. i can i can do like um in our newsletter i can do like a top five book so the that i read this year oh too. yeah if anybody's interested in reading it for the substack actually so. we should do that and yeah. I, might, I might throw in some some book recommendations too oh my god yeah we are <laughs> cultured women who we are have, well-rounded yeah we have many tastes speaking of taste what is your latest thing that you have watched this week jenny so i watched emily the criminal the the film this is a crime thriller Written and directed by John Patton Ford, and this is his uh, feature film debut, so congrats. Uh, Congrats. Yeah, so this movie, it premiered at Sundance in January, and then it had a limited release uh, starting in August, and now it's on Netflix. It's newly on Netflix, so you can watch it there. Mm -hmm. So Emily the Criminal, it stars Aubrey Plaza as Emily, who is an art-slash-like-design-school-or-major-dropout and she currently works as a catering company delivery worker who is deeply, deeply in debt uh, due to student loans. And she's unable to land a higher paying like office job due to a felony conviction for assaults on her record. So against like all of this going on in her life, it makes complete sense that she is initially enticed by like a make a quick buck promise of dummy shopping, which turns out to be like part of a credit card fraud ring. And she eventually, it like gets deeper and deeper into this fraud ring um, that's co-organized by this guy named Yusuf, who's played by Theo Rossi. So that is the summary of the film. What are your thoughts? Just like initially broad view thoughts, Pellen. I had a fucking great time with this movie, dude. Yeah. It's really fun. It's just, I mean, not fun, but it, it's just, it's you good. Know, you finish it and you're like, that's a fucking movie, dude. Yeah. Like that is just nice, tight, tense, compelling protagonist. I I did not feel time was dragging at all. No, there's like not a wasted moment. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, Aubrey's great. Uh, initially, I uh, the the accent kind of felt a little bit comedic, and I don't think that was the intention. But once you get into it, it just felt very yeah, like 
Uncut Gems light in a way, I would say. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, like a diet version of Uncut Gems. Um, yeah, that's so, actually a really good way to describe it. Yeah, I, I had a I had a great time. Just for anybody that doesn't know what dummy shopping is, Jenny, do you, could you yes. explain it? Yeah, so dummy shopping, like in and of itself, it just means basically you're someone is buying something on someone else's behalf. That's just yeah. like the literal, like most basic thing about yeah. dummy shopping. Yeah. But usually, what it refers to is like when these um, some organized rings they get credit cards or often stolen credit card information they use that to make purchases like in stores like usually big box purchases Mm -hmm. from like tvs to appliances um and so they'll have these like dummy shoppers make those purchases and then they will sell those purchases using the stolen you know stolen credit card charges that Mm -hmm. so it's on someone else's dime yeah and they'll sell off the merchandise to a third party yeah or like sometimes we see in there is the series Good Girls, for example, mm-hmm. where they would buy these things and then make returns. Um, and and so in any case, it's like all kind of ways of using this these workers, these like workers who are often looking just to like make some extra money to make purchases on behalf of something else. And either it's like in legally gray or plain out illegal territory. Yeah, yeah. So I was initially interested in this movie because I've been hearing really great things about it, especially in the context of Aubrey Plaza, who was having a moment <laughs> like oh, everyone yeah. is in love with her, White Lotus. They they've like remembered how much we all like her mm-hmm. and her her acting and her like persona in yeah. general. Yeah. Um yeah, I think she's I think she's good at this. And I think like you said, this is just a film where everything is like it's tight. It's just where it needs to be. It is all competent. It's just like yeah. working on all cylinders, yeah. which is really impressive for especially, you know, a feature film debut. Yeah. So one of the things I like about this movie is that it is different from what I think some people might be tempted to slot it into, which is mm-hmm. like the, the eat the rich style subgenre that is so popular. We've talked about it before. Um, like there are similar objects of like social commentary for example student debt the gig economy labor conditions um how criminal record or a past can like follow you around yeah but while so many of those films are really like tongue-in-cheek very slick they're very focused on the wealthy people themselves that you know we're supposed to direct our hatred towards um this one is actually so firmly rooted in the opposite direction, which is the everyday struggles yeah. of a regular person who is sort of made reckless uh, or more reckless through sheer desperation and the hope of a life that could be uh, a better life somewhere down the road. Yeah. And it is like so in Emily's point of view, even the way that it's shot, like, like a lot of close shots, a lot of like it puts you on Emily's level. It's it's so grounded in her. And I think that is really good, like for a film that you know a a thing where it does want you to feel kind of rage kind of um the sense of unfairness at at how life turns out at how institutions like turn out people and like turn them to dust like that it's i think this is the the right way to do it if there is like a right way to do it yeah definitely i mean like the 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 common thing that a lot of people say if you've ever been poor if you've ever been struggling financially is like it's very expensive to be poor it's very expensive Mm -hmm to be lower like working class and someone that cannot like make ends meet essentially and that's like the structure of capitalism it's like set up that way so that those at the very bottom struggle way more 
And it's compelling because like in good films, in films about tension, the protagonist struggling and like the want is very clear in this film and the obstacles are many. So it makes for a compelling film and it's and it's tough to actually live through it and you can kind of empathize in some senses if you've ever been there or close to that. I prefer this approach in general. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah, shout out to Aubrey Plaza real quick as well. Like I just, I wanted to uh, say, I think her yeah. independent film career in the last couple of years has been really it's interesting. Been really interesting, yeah. Um, like I watched Black Bear recently, and she mm-hmm. was so good in Black Bear. I think you can watch that on Prime. Um, obviously Ingrid Goes West is something that yes. you know recently came out too. You know, she's she's trying to expand her repertoire of mm-hmm. of just like performances and different types of characters and like trying to not be typecast into a particular role but also at the same time there's something deeply or replies about every single role that yes. she has picked um I totally agree. which is which is a great balance and i think she's done a great job of just like picking roles for herself and obviously it's like ended up in the white lotus with a little bit more mainstream but this is just yeah. this is just one of the latest great choices that she's yeah. made and she was also uh, a producer on this film. So she like sort of played a pivotal role in as the uh, John Patton Ford explained it mm-hmm. in, in interviews. Like she was really active and helped a lot in getting this movie made and making sure like it worked. One Another thing I appreciate in this film is Yusuf and the character of Yusuf yeah. and his relationship with Emily and how they feel like there's this instant sort of connection and spark and i feel they they really like had chemistry yeah when i mean when he first appears on screen you're just like oh hello (laughs) because not not just because he's not just because he's hot i think that's like that's put to one side there's just something very intense about him Mm -hmm. and there's like he does a really great job of performing this like just needs to get the job done which obviously you we as viewers have recognized in emily up until that point too because that's also been communicated to us so to see her recognize that in him and we understand that spark immediately it's just good writing it's good performance yeah. um yeah i really like that i think theo rossi rossi is um amazing like i i would yeah. love to see him in more stuff i think he's such a good performer i've never seen him in anything mm-hmm. before so me neither. Um, I'll say also it's really smart that, you know, they, you, of course, like, I totally agree. Like, he has that sort of kindred spirit in Emily where they recognize this, like, pragmatism, this desire to, to do whatever mm. is necessary to get ahead. But also as time goes on, like, it reveals how Yusuf is probably softer than Emily herself. Like, yeah. the, the person that Emily becomes. You see him with his mother. You see him have this, like, his version of the American dream where he is an immigrant. He wants to buy a new development and be, become a landlord and basically support himself and his mother through that. Yeah. And this is like also, by the way, foreshadowing or echoing how, you know, we'll see Emily later, like one way towards upward mobility here is basically to profit off of people who yes. you might've been yourself just a few years ago. Yeah. So that's a neat trick, but yeah. And then as time goes on, like we see Yusuf in contrast to Emily and watching Emily become her final form is like really good. The development mm. of that, mm-hmm. like where we root for her to get up and fight when she's like robbed that first time when she, um, yeah. yeah, to, to get up, to fight, to use violence. We root for her as she again, has to physically fight against, Yusuf's cousin Khalil. Uh, we were rooting for all this time as she's like 
using, again, whatever means necessary to achieve your aim, purely pragmatic and ruthless, um, and like in a way that is deserved, we feel. Mm-hmm. But finally, in like the, the, after the, the, the big climactic fight scene, like in the car, which is the true like emotional climax mm-hmm. with Yusuf, that is, it's not, out of left field what she does but it is a little bit emotionally like jarring to see that and to to know that actually on the one hand this is just a natural extension of where her character has been going this is like yeah inevitable that it would end up with this choice yeah but it still hurts and i think that was a really smart storytelling choice agree and i uh, throughout the film we see this predator prey Mm -hmm. balance yes um Mm -hmm. and how she just keeps tipping a little bit more towards predator even in the situations where you think that she's prey um mm-hmm. she immediately flips it and in that moment honestly it's just survival isn't it and that that's yeah. the thing like this this is about survival and the predator prey analogy makes perfect sense here um mm-hmm. it's kill or be, be killed um it's about making as much money as you can but obviously towards the end of the film because it spirals so out of hand it's about staying alive and mm-hmm. It's just, I I think it just does such a great job. Like the way that it's written, it does a really, really great job of just putting you in her shoes and realizing that she has more balls than you maybe would if you were in her Mm -hmm. position, respecting her for it, and then ultimately feeling sorry for her that she has to be in this position at all. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's such a compelling protagonist story arc. Like, that's all you want. As, like, a writer, that's, like, I'm envious of that. I wish that one day I can write a script that kind of, like, does that for for the viewers and the protagonists and that relationship that ends up building that almost feels patriarchal. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I really enjoyed this, uh, the way that it unraveled, essentially. Yeah, and how it, you know, it makes sense for her character. It makes sense with what we she t- reveals about her own character in her past like yeah. her record um where she's like essentially what i regret is i didn't go far enough yeah and we see now in this film like where she goes far enough she yeah. goes too far even you yeah. could argue yeah um what do we make of like like fi- the final scene mm-hmm. is sort of like where emily ends up after yeah. all this has gone down yeah are we happy that she has achieved her you know quote-unquote dream and is what's what she's doing in that dream you know this film would have been a five stars out of five for me if it just stopped at the beach okay no need to like go further and show what she's the scheme she's cooked up on her own i totally understand the choice to have that in and i Mm -hmm. understand what it means to complete that arc i understand it completely because there's this thing that is played around with that's never really mentioned. She's a white girl. She's a white girl throughout the whole film. There is a privilege in that, and we see that privilege both in the way that she is chosen by Yusuf and his gang to make the people being scammed feel like they're not being scammed because it's a white girl and, you know, not an immigrant um, who she's surrounded by in that, you know, with, with, with the first round of people, like a person of color or an immigrant. And... In the end, like, obviously, it lands at a place where, you know, spoiler alert, she becomes the Yusuf. Um, she becomes, like, the person that is ringleading. And obviously, she's in somewhere in South America, uh, and most of the people that she's doing it, she's speaking in Spanish, she's, most of the people that she's doing it to are obviously South American. So, it, 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 I get it. It closes the loop 
on on this. I just wish that there was mystery. And I wish that mm. there was an ambivalence in a way or like an uncertainty for the viewer to decide what becomes of her. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's strength in that. There's strength in the unknown. Yeah. How about you? Yeah, that that's a good like sort of analysis of that. Um, I think I wonder to what extent John Patton Ford meant for Emily to be very clearly white. Aubrey Plaza is half Puerto Rican. True. Obviously, Aubrey Plaza passes very clearly for white. Yeah. And so that sort of um, ambiguity is s- sort of interesting and, and thinking of like it, whether or not they did incorporate that into and I they probably they did incorporate it, but they leave it unclear. Like, yeah. Um, but Aubrey Plaza's character Emily is definitely passes like appears as like a a white girl, yeah. a white woman. Yeah. That is like one of her unspoken advantages in carrying out a lot of these crimes yeah Um, yeah, yeah. that's definitely true i think it would almost be even more poignant if it was like again they don't really ever explicitly touch on her race in here except like to show that she can speak spanish like her she wants to go to south america Mm -hmm. Um, possibly there's like family connection there but it's almost more impactful if it was like okay emily is half Puerto Rican, um, half white woman, but she goes to South America and she is like exploiting or making use of at least people who are at least share her background, but also are different from her. But, you know, that being said, I actually do like the way that it ended. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a little bit, it lacks the sort of like, like elegant ambivalence that we, we do really like in films. We do. It's true. (laughs) Um, But I think it like the full circle and with what it, you know what it did with Yusuf, and then what it does with her now. Like mm-hmm. I think it, it sort of it, it all comes together um, pretty nicely and neatly. So yeah. I have no quibbles with it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, ultimately, the if the message of the film is like someone's always getting exploited, and it's a matter of like who do you want to be, the exploited or the exploiter? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it lands. It. I mean, it fits neatly into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Pellen, what did you watch for us this week? So I watched Decision to Leave, which is now on Mubi, directed by Park Chan-wook. It's his latest film that tells a story of a detective, Hye-jun, played by Park Hae-il, trying to solve the death of a man whose wife, Suri, played by Tang Wei, he becomes more and more suspicious as the film goes on. Unfortunately for Hye-jun, Suri is intoxicating and their affair, be it love or obsession, unravels him and the case itself. So you watched this more recently than I. I did rewatch it, uh, but I first watched this in the movie theaters in a screening a couple weeks ago, and it was really nice mm-hmm. to actually like get reminded of like how I felt about it. First impressions for you? What are you thinking? I liked it. The thing I came a- came out of it with is like how romantic it is, yeah, and yeah. how compelling their I don't know if you want to call it love story or, or their tragedy is, yeah. The romance was so so tender. It was like twisted. It's a, a twisted romance for sure, but yeah. it's so keenly like aches in like the right way. Yeah. Um many have mentioned that this is one of the more romantic films of the year. I think it's one of the more romantic films in a while, actually, not even just this year. Um, I agree with you. I also really like this film. I liked it a lot when I first watched it. I liked it even more the second time around. Um, mm. 
Yes. Um, so how familiar are you with Park Chan-wook's films? You know, we're talking uh, Sympathy for Lady Vengeance, Old Boy, The Handmaiden, Stoker. Uh, the only film of his I've seen is The Handmaiden. Mm. But, you know, familiar with his, like, his body work in general. Like, he is one of the top, if not the top, like, South Korean uh, yeah. directors working today. Yeah. He's just different. There's just nobody like him, um, which I really appreciate in the body of like directors these days. So many have mentioned this film as an ode to Hitchcock. Um, you know, it's like a compelling femme fatale, very well veiled erotica, uh, murder, obviously. Uh, so Vertigo comes to mind. I think he is a, you know, Park Chan wook is an indulgent director. This is no exception. You've seen The Handmaiden. The Handmaiden, I think, is a little bit more erotica leaning. I want to give a shout out to Manola Dargis's review in the New York Times. She described him as an exuberant, adventurous maximalist who likes to kink up narrative and delights in the plasticity of the medium. Mm. Very good redux of what <laughs> of what Park Chan-wook is all about. So, you know, if we want to get into the details of the plasticity of the medium, how do you feel about the pacing of this film and how it moves? I thought actually the first half of it dragged a little bit mm. um but yeah as they move to like the setting change in Ipo, as we sort of get deeper into the second case and then mm. its connection to the first case i think i don't know if it was a pace in itself or just my interest i really started to perk up mm. a little bit more and i thought it was just getting better and better interesting because i feel the opposite i thought mm. the first half was incredible and I thought the second half, bar the ending, was the weaker half. Um, but I get, I get what you mean because there is a little bit more like tying of the there's knot. More set, yeah, there's more setup in the first yes. half, and and that's like part of it. That's part of the point. Right? Yeah, like, yeah. We don't see until the end of it how exactly the th the things transpired as they transpired exactly. and why they transpired yeah, that way yeah so w one of the things that i love about this film which is different from a lot of his previous films and just different in general than anything i've ever seen before is a way that it just kind of like like you, you basically feel a thump to your chest and you're in the fucking film it doesn't warm you up <laughs> you're just you're just in it immediately and it's it feels like the first 10 minutes you're kind of feel you're playing catch up you're trying to get all the details that it's just basically barreling at you and there's something very destabilizing about this and for me anyway the destabilizing feeling did not stop until i guess like the last 10 minutes of the film but i kind of appreciated it you kind of feel like you're on uneven ground and that makes sense because so is the protagonist and he's playing catch-up the same way that we're playing catch-up because there is just one person that is ahead of us the whole time, and that is Tang Wei's character. How do you feel about Tang Wei? Uh, yeah, she was really wonderful in this, and I know that she is one of the like the top working actresses in, in China today, and mm -hmm. especially overseas. She does a lot of international ventures, has gotten a lot of international acclaim, and I can really see why she is... I would say the, the heart and soul of this. Yeah, I agree. I think there's something so hard about this character and she just mm -hmm. nails it completely. It, the, you know, the, the character is intentionally mysterious and you just, it's veering into opaque, but yeah. she does such a great job of just like reining it in. You can tell that she has like a firm grip on who this woman is, what she wants, and 
the fact that she's always going to be on the periphery of understanding, both for, for the viewer and for Hedgen. Um, yeah, I, I really enjoyed. I think she's like the standout of this, and I hope that she gets nominated. Uh, technology is used quite a bit in this. Cell phones, Apple Watches, all of this is, is dotted and very, very important for the film. Mm-hmm. We've previously talked about how exhausted we are of seeing screens in screens um as people that are double screening triple screening at times it gets really old how did you feel about how it was used here well i think the thing that we complain about is more often like how poorly screens are used in films um especially ones that are trying to like you know convey the sense of like youth like oh like people staring at their cell phones all the time but this is actually it's it's a rare case where they are pivotal to Mm -hmm everything in the story from yeah characters connection to each other to the plot like the so many plot points hinge on technology yeah and i think it's integrated really elegantly and really naturally like mm-hmm. you see obviously people text that's probably the thing we people see most often depicted about cell phones yeah. on screen like just texting yeah. um but here people text they leave voice memos they record things they um track uh, where other people are like on on the maps yeah. on gps and I thought the reveal, um, especially of, you know, the cell phone when we first discover how important it is to one yeah. of the mysteries, I thought that was really well done. And then I also really like how they have this cell phone as a symbol of their love, in a sense, their relationship. Throw it deep in the sea, bury it where no one can find it. Yeah. Uh, this, I know. I mean, it's just like a really good use of technology and cell phones. Yeah. It's just, it's so dynamic. Like it, it, the way that the camera work is incorporated into showing the reveals or showing, like even we are living as viewers in the screen of the phone at times, which is really fun. Yeah. Just perspective and point of view, the way that that's, that's kind of incorporated within the technology itself is just, this is how you do it, you know? Like, it it certainly is hard and you need to figure out the tone of the film in order to make that work. But because there's an element of chaos in this film uh, that is just undercurrent, um, mm-hmm. it works, it works. Like, any time that we see the three dots appearing as, some, as he's waiting for her to type and we see the three dots, like, enlarge through his yeah. perspective, it's just like, shit like that is so playful. I love the scene where he's waiting to, he's typing out his response, he's about to send it, and then she keeps, like, sending, like, uh, the next text, the next text, and each time he has to change his response, and then finally it's just, okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's so good, and it's so... I mean, we've all been there. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah. it's, it's incredible. I want to give a shout out to the camera work specifically. Like, Park Chan work mm-hmm. is, he's a director of style. Like, he loves to play with you know lenses with zooms with setups like his his style is very painterly like anytime you Mm -hmm. see a frame it could be a portrait of something it's what i think a lot of people that had never seen any of his films were really surprised about when he did little little drummer girl uh the tv show and it's just you know all those methods are here However, he takes it like one step further. And a part of that is because I think he's trying to convey the way that we are meant to feel destabilized by her, by this mystery, by the murder, by the way that we can't quite pin her down and neither can Hedgen. There's a lot of like handheld camera work in this, which works fantastically, especially when we're going through the perspective of Hedgen. 
you know, the blurring whenever he puts his eye drops in and he tries to look at something and we mm-hmm. see his POV. That's really fun. And more than anything, like the thing that initially when I first watched it in the movie theater gave me a little bit of motion sickness. He does this thing where the ca- the camera is moving forward momentum and then he zooms as it's going forward. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of like grabs you in and like puts you in a bit of a chokehold. Um, and also, yeah, again, like makes you feel a little bit uneven, makes you feel dizzy in a way. I mean, stylistically, it was just wonderful. It is like like chaotic, like you said, but then also there's this very careful planned element. Like you see these these beautiful vistas and these like top down shots, um, like when Heijun gets out of his car and chases after Sorei on the beach. Yeah. That are just so meticulous and precise and uh mm-hmm. like like on a grid in a way. And there's yeah. a beauty to that rigidity as well. Uh, yeah. and then in contrast with again the sort of more wild, uh looser camera work and shots i think i think it was a really beautiful combination yeah i agree um like in general i think the film just felt really unbridled in a way i think that's like the word for me there's mm-hmm. something very intentionally unmooring about this like you kind of feel like you're lost at sea and you don't know you can't see land and that that's intention like again it's intentional in- initially i feel like a lot of people just from some of the feedback that i got from a few of my friends but not all of them was like I don't know, it didn't quite hit for me, or like I couldn't know what to make of it. And I understand that sentiment. Um, I do think that that's intentional. Um, it's also like pretty funny too. Like, and you know, I was laughing a lot when I first watched it, but on this rewatch, that some of the performances were so good. Some of the line deliveries were hilarious. Like, it's really fun. I, was it funny to you? I don't know. I was like cracking up quite a lot more like the second time around. I think there's a lot of great comedy coming from, especially some of the supporting cast. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the, the lines that they're given, like, both of Heijun's, like, assistant or junior detectives. They're they so are, good, both of them. Yeah. They, yeah. They're giving, like, they're given some of, the, like, the physical moments or the, the sort of witty one-liners. Um, and, and just people who are kind of watching and beholding Heijun and Sorei, like, their yeah. relationship. And from the outside, they're just like, what the fuck yeah and i I thought that is funny and kind of shows how in their own bubble of obsession and 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 desire and and tragedy like these two are wrapped up in yeah exactly i do want to give a shout out to kim shin young who plays yonsu the the second the the assistant in ippo Mm -hmm. um fantastic just so funny finally i just want to want to talk a little bit about food i think food is something that is understandably in all history of cinema and all depictions of food in cinema inherently sensual and in this film it's no exception to that rule uh was there a particular food scene that jumped out to you that you really appreciated because i think there's like a few there's like two or three maybe maybe not a scene so much as just like what the food means like Mm -hmm. um yeah the fact that Heijin has been watching Sorei for several nights in a row, he knows that she eats ice cream for dinner sometimes. Yeah. And so when they finally kind of mutually acknowledge that she knows, that he knows that she knows that he has been staking her out every night and like yeah. stalking her more or less, like, you know, the, the mention of ice cream can come out so, so naturally and nonchalantly. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really like that as yeah. just like a, a stepping point in their 
developing relationship or yeah. if you want to call that a relationship. Yeah. I really liked how when she is interrogated, you know, the first time she's interroga- interrogated and then the second time she's interrogated, the comparison of the type of food that she's given, because the interrogations are lasting for so long, they have to eat at some point. And part of the thing with Hijun is that he is such a controlled professional investigator and around her he just like he doesn't know how to check himself and check his behavior to make sure that it's a professional and be like appropriate yeah and he's just like his his subordinates notice too like because it's so obvious um and then obviously the first time like when he orders the premium sushi box for her first of all hell yeah like i just (laughs) i loved that entire scene i loved the orchestration like the way that they both worked in symphony to lay the table out Mm-hmm. wordlessly they just understood the assignment telepathically between each other and you know they felt like a married couple at that point and i i just thought i thought that was like perfectly done and then obviously how it compares to the second interrogation and what yeah. she eats then that yeah there's there's just something about like the finer moments of of this uh that really work for me and i think like just to harp on again about the the romantic aspect of this one of the biggest things about love which i i'd like to see portrayed on screen and i'm not like a big you know rom-com person or mm-hmm. a big romance person for films and tv but it's just like something about this really hit in what they were willing to sacrifice for each other yeah. at different times in their lives mm-hmm. and the, mm-hmm. the the way that that played like one love ends another begins i thought that was really beautiful yeah i thought the fact that it was like both love and reputation which is what it's always been about yeah and just the willingness especially in the the second half to see um so right like what she's willing to give up for yeah to give up so that this guy who hates her now what he can still keep after all this the dust settles and yeah they're left with nothing i thought i don't know this is really like i would say on carol levels of both romance and um tragedy and how yeah. like an ill-formed romance yeah. comes out that's such a good comparison i didn't even think of it that way you're so right it really is there's there's just some melancholy in this that is always there um from the beginning all the way up until the end and it obviously like really hits with that final scene which is breathtaking it's such a beautiful final scene like mm-hmm. like the landscape the way that it ends where it you know what it suggests speaking of like not necessarily ambivalent but just tragic endings Mm um yeah it's just it's just beautiful you know ultimately i think with this film park chan wook strikes a really in all of his previous films like he strikes a perfect balance between style and substance and this to me leans like ever so slightly towards style just because he's playing with so many like camera techniques and methods and like with the depiction of technology and so and so on and so forth but you know, I, I don't care. He's such a confident, capable director that the slight edge towards style does not bother me. The substance is still good. It's yeah, still excellent. I, I'll say it's like, I think it's substantive. I think it's both style. Yeah, it's totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally substantive. I find like the, the, the critical perception to it to not be as clear as something like Handmaiden. Yeah. It's know? maybe not what some people would expect from Park Chan-wook. And True. I think that is that slight departure is maybe throwing some people. I think that's a perfect sign of a director that's constantly hungry to progress his art and progress his technique. And that's just, what more do you want from a working director? So 
I highly, highly recommend this. It's on Mubi. You know, get that free trial if you need to get it. And yeah, I hope you guys enjoy it. All right, so for culture notes, we are going to be talking White Lotus finale. So this is Sunday night. Me and Jenny have just finished watching the season finale. Emotions are high. We're both <laughs> very excited. We're we're fucking buzzing yeah, off of off accurate. of the the lines of coke that are good TV. You know, <laughs> take first thoughts, takeaways. Let me hear it. Just wow, that was so much fun. It's like. TV can be can be so fun sometimes, and this it is can. really just a prime example of that. Oh, I'm just I'm I have so much unbridled joy within me. I'm I'm so happy. I love like event television in general. It fucking it's so fucking sick when it happens, and it's especially fun when we have like such an amazing cast of characters. And it's it's surprising, like it surprised me, which is yeah really yeah. really hard to do nowadays when it's all very these, hard you know people are spending every minute dissecting everything, theorizing, guessing, yep. and yeah, I've read basically all of those and still end up ended up so surprised. Like Mike White, you did it, you did it, dude. Um, it's funny. Most of the feedback that has happened from this season has been that, like, I don't care about who dies. I don't care about who the dead bodies are. And sure, sure, like, we said something similar to that when we reviewed the show. And, yeah, absolutely. It it wasn't, like, the first thing. But clearly, clearly, we all eventually cared at the end because the amount of misdirects that were happening, even in the majority of this finale, just showed us, like, how much we were all on the edge of our seats in terms of, like how it was going to just land right. and the way that it like season long it kind of crept under our skin and by the end of it we were just like itching to find out yeah i mean incredible we, we care about where each character ends up and what's going to happen yes to them because that is sort of like the the magic sauce of the white lotus it's it's all wholly dependent on these different sets of characters and how they interact with each other and react. Um, yeah. So let's yeah. let's get into it. Let's talk okay. about what happens to each like little uh, sector of these characters. Yes. Um, so for anybody that hasn't watched the season finale of White Lotus, L- Lotus season two, please stop listening right now because we're about to spoil the fuck out of it. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> what do you want to do? Do you want to just go like? Let's go for the big one. Let's just start with okay. the big one. All right. <laughs> Tanya, rest in peace, my queen. Oh my god, what a way to go. She really stuck the landing, if you get what I mean. <laughs> it was, I mean, I think some people are mad. I've seen some reactions uh, ma- mad at Mike White because he basically, he said more or less like, oh, Tanya's, you know, Jennifer Coolidge is going to be around. Like, I got her for season three. Like, she'll never, Tanya will always be around as long as I'm making this. Um, clearly he lied, but he did that because y'all keep it. A- like tinkering in his little like you you try too much to keep guessing everyone so he he kind of pulled a fast one and i i respect him for it i had such a fun time with this and i loved where it landed and i think like i said this to you you know before we started recording there was a point where i was like she's she's gonna be responsible for these dead bodies i just don't know how i didn't and there was i didn't see it at all until she literally like made the run for the gun yeah, well, she she started getting so hysterical where I was just like, oh no. And I think the main thing for me was like, are these people actually going to kill her or is she getting in her head? And yeah. was this were they just genuinely just trying to pitch her to invest in the Palermo property? Obviously now. Yeah, they kind of more or less like with um 
what is his name? Jack's, like, his commentary, everything. Yeah. It kind of, like, confirmed in one direction. But the ambiguity was a really good touch, I think, to to leave that ambivalence up to make us think, like, well, if Tan is Tanya still just going to mess things up in, like, the most Tanya fashion yeah. ever? Uh, and that would have been a fun... Not fun, but that would have been, like, a, a fucking entertaining option, too. Um, but things went dark. It got dark. It got dark, but it was also really fucking funny. Like, just the way that she was just like, you've got this, and then, like, hit her head on the way down, which was so obviously gonna happen. Because, like Mike White says in his, like, post- like the post episode commentary like it's such a tanya thing to do yeah so i was just like cracking up i love how i mean there were some really excellent choices for dialogue in this yeah. episode and i mean after she has basically massacred the boat yeah she has yeah. killed uh, at least like two gay men and is now like watching the third one die her first question as he's bleeding on the floor is just like is greg is my husband having an affair yeah it's so funny because it just ties the knot perfectly with how she was at the beginning of the season. Yeah. Where she was just asking all the wrong fucking questions, which was like obviously driving Greg mad. Um, yeah. What is going to happen to Portia, which is the other oh end of this coin, the other side of this coin? I thought it was so good how, again, they, they hit home the similarities between Portia and Tanya because, yeah. again, like at the airport, when she sees Albie, one of the first <laughs> things she asks after like she has just learned oh her boss may or may not have been the one to yeah. die at the hotel her, well the first things out of her mouth is can i have your number <laughs> yeah just because she's just like oh phew i guess i uh skirted around that fucking issue yeah, like, as if interpol isn't going to be on her ass in like 10 minutes are you kidding me are you kidding me there's going to be a whole investigation she's so funny that like i i think just when i was like scrolling through tw- twitter after the fact I was just cracking up at how everyone was just live tweeting Portia's behavior. Just <laughs> first of all, you, you're worried that someone has stolen your phone and is kidnapping you. So you ask them a question while you're in the passenger yes, seat yes. and they're in the driver's seat and they're clearly deranged. And yeah. you have found out that they, what are you, you doing? Found it, yeah, you found it's a dangerous situation. What are you doing? And then she, what, decides to not get her things from the hotel I mean, sure, but at some point, would you not want to find the authorities instead of, like, getting on a plane and, like, trying to run away from a situation that's clearly kind of fucked up? Just so funny. She's so funny. Um, she's a great character. I'm I'm so pleased with how she's turned out. It, dude, Hayley Lou Richardson's anxious face is fucking iconic. Like, she, she needs to stay away from roles like this because she's going to get typecast because she's too fucking good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so good. <laughs> I'm also, like, impressed with uh, Jack, like, the, the actor's performance. Like, we see the switch yeah. from this sort of, like, like we, we said before, I think, Love Island kind of boy, and then you, you see the the darkness, this really cold... Um, the like emptiness there, behind the eyes. There is something wrong with this dude, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's kind of how it is with Essex boys. They switch it up on you. They are charming one minute, and then they are binge-drinking, depressing addicts <laughs> the next. So we've all been there. You guys have seen it on Love Island. It's very accurate. And he does, <laughs> yeah, like you said, he does a really good job. I would love to see him in more stuff. Um, that is tonally a little bit more dark. I think this guy can probably handle it. Um Odds on Portia and Albie working out. <laughs> oh my god. The two ugh, lovely idiots. I fucking twat. I, I mean, they're just so irresistibly funny funny together. Like it's really yeah. just a wonderful combination and they Yeah. 
where else can you put two dumbasses but together? Yeah, like, exactly. So I think perfect. I saw someone say that they're not going to last beyond one day. I actually disagree. I actually think that uh, Portia will probably latch herself onto Albie, marry him, and he will cheat on her the same way that his father has cheated on his mom. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think it'll just be a repetition, which will be, you know, nice and poetic. And speaking of Albie and his family, I think where the three men ended up was... Mm-hmm. I, I guess Michael Imperioli's character was going to die, so clearly I wasn't really expecting Same. this development. But <laughs> Yeah, dude, we guessed so completely fun. wrong. <laughs> we guessed completely wrong. That's okay. That's like, as we said before, not even the point of everything. So Sure. Yeah. Um, but I think where they ended up with the three generations of men, very funny. Again, like you see the, yeah. the shot in the airport, the, the beautiful woman passes by, each of them turning their heads to, yep. to, to gawk at her. It's... It's just like classic. Like Albie yeah. will will continue on this generational uh, curse. Speaking of the couples, did Ethan cheat? Well, again, like the the ambiguity, the open endedness of this is kind yeah. of the beauty. But personally, yeah. I'm gonna say like yes. I I'll, yeah. I, th- I think so. Same. I think it. I think it freed something within him. Yeah. So that he could then. I mean, they're I don't equal know. now. They like yeah yeah the the they yeah. can both get over. What a, and we see like they emerge a happier, stronger couple. Yeah, um, yeah. More sort of like the ignorant bliss that is borrowed from Cameron and Daphne. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, polyamory might be the way forward for the two of those. <laughs> like, I thought it was also um, really good how you know they use this this opportunity once more to expand on Daphne's worldview mm. and how much she is. Yeah, whether she genuinely holds this view or just trying very hard to hold this view of don't victimize yourself yeah Um, and you see that in the moment when ethan tells her he thinks that cameron and harper might have done something you see the the sort of mask break a little bit the waiver um you do but then very firmly she she moves on to this facade or whether or not it's a true facade or just like something she's i don't know really really she's trying to buy into it but it's yeah it's the same belief of cameron's and his like you know, everyone wants to be a victim thing, uh, yeah. But just like yeah. made more feminine and carefree, and uh, yeah. I thought that was a really great sort of reflection on the values that this couple apparently really holds. Uh, yeah, whether, totally. You know, truly for Cameron or just like an effort for Daphne. Like either way, this is their shared value. Yeah, and I do think, like me personally, just my worldview on it is that that's going to break at some point it there's only so many years of that performance that can take a toll on you and a woman like that who is beautiful and women like that in general who rely on their beauty to to obviously then sleep with the personal trainers and whatever they realize that the 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 imbalance of power is a little bit more noted the older Mm -hmm. they get um Mm -hmm. so i think that's not the the that's not gonna hold um do you think ethan and harper are happy or they're gonna work out you know, before this episode, I would have said, like, definitely not. Um, yeah. But after this, like, they seem quite happy for now. If we're talking about, like, pretending that they're real life characters, um, I think they are they would probably get divorced at some point. Yeah. Honest. Yeah. All it takes is one more thing. And I think they're both two honest people that can't take bullshit. And I think at some point they're going to realize that they took a leaf out of Cameron and Daphne's book and they don't fucking want to read that book. So we're left with, I guess, who are the clear winners of this whole thing. Um, yes. Our local <laughs> girls. 
Yeah, I'm glad this happened just because first season, obviously, the the locals were treated pretty poorly and they got the mm-hmm. shit end of the stick, I think, almost completely, right? All of them. Yeah, both as like characters and also yeah. probably as like um, within the text and also outside the text in terms of yes. the screen time, the, the attention, the care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. God, shout out to Lucia. I hope that she uses that money and gets even richer and goes out to LA by herself um, or finds another mark that will do it for her. But I'm really happy for Lucia. Shout out to Mia though, right? Yeah. I'm like probably even happier for Mia. Like a, yeah? Yeah. a girl with very simple wants and needs and yeah. she just wants to sing. And although I, I can't say that I find her singing that pleasant to listen to, I That's she mean. Really, she's like an. I'd say <laughs> she's, she's fine. A, she's an okay singer. She's a yeah. She is for a small town in Italy. She's fucking great, dude. Like sure, she yeah. is, She's okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> but I'm happy that she she is just like the sweetest kind of character. That's like really just let me play my piano. Let me do my singing. Yeah. Let me uh let me help you out, Valentina. Let me you know be your sexual awakening, and then let me. Hit Help you out with the closet. One of my friends. Yeah. yeah, let me get, yeah. let me find a nice little lesbian friend for you. Yeah, it's just it's such a simple little gal, but like it's it's so good to have those like doses of sort of sweetness and yeah. real like genuine feeling in this. She's so pure hearted. Shout out to you, Mia. Um, yeah, I I love that those two were the winners of the season, hands down. So, final question. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we were talking about next season. Where do we think it's going to be? We did get some insight from Mike White in that post-episode segment. Yes. He said somewhere, it, well, he said it will have something to do with Eastern religion and death. D- yeah. So he said season one was about money, season two was about sex, and season three is probably going to be about death. So we were chatting. We think it's probably going to be a country where Buddhism is prominent. What are your predictions? What country do you think? I think... You know, keeping the sort of religious, spiritual aspect in mind, um, also thinking about where rich tourists and rich American tourists uh, like to go stay at, you know, mm-hmm. high-end resorts in Asia. Maybe something like Bali or... Yeah. I was thinking, like, it'd be cool if they did, you know, maybe someplace in Hokkaido in, in Japan. Yeah. I, I have a feeling it might lean a little bit more like Bali or like Southeast Asia or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think they have to do something that feels a little bit different to Hawaii, but also, yeah, it can. It has to be somewhere where like rich American tourists go to a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm leaning more towards Thailand and yeah. Bali as well. And I, and I wonder if like, if they do keep the, you know, the ocean, the crashing waves as a continued motif like that is... Mm-hmm kind of what you would think of more for you know one of those countries totally mike white if you're listening to this (laughs) um i would love to pitch a reality where the next season involves not just american tourists i would love you want to expand it i want to expand the rich people fuckery so i would love to see a rich person from like old money europe or old money british like we saw a little bit of that with tom hollander but i feel like we can you know up the ante a little bit you know some middle eastern princesses would be awesome (laughs) uh let's yeah let's uh let's get away with those borders do you know what i mean um but yeah if you are listening to this which i'm sure you are yes you definitely are (laughs) um (laughs) all right so that is it for the end of white lotus season two the finale 
If you're watching anything that you think we should check out, let us know at criticismisdead at gmail.com or just at us at DM us at criticismisdead on Twitter and Instagram. We are going to be doing our year-end list for both movies and TV next week, so you've got that to look forward to. For extended show notes, including links to everything that we've been talking about and more, including the books that we've read this year that we really liked, please subscribe to our newsletter, criticismisdead.substack.com. As always, thank you so much for listening. Please rate and review on Apple Podcasts with a five stars and tell a friend about us and we will see you next week. Bye. Criticism is Dead is produced by Pelin Keskin-Lu and Jenny Chijan. Our music is by Rika. Our artwork and design are by Sarah Macias and Andrew Luke.